0: We get the privilege of having some of our older uh, young adults join us in the gathering. That's part of their monthly rhythm. At the age of third or fourth grade and above, that they would join us in the gathering at least once a month. We think that's a healthy framework. They also serve once a month, and then they have their own uh, discipleship. So just think that's really good for kids to be part of it. You know, they see a lot of kids... They've never experienced Big Church, and then they, for some reason, as they transition out of the home, they they then never go to Big Church. That's like one of the things. So we want them to know that it's a safe place where they're loved. So what's up, Liv? KK? Oaktown? Right there. OJ? I didn't, yeah, What up? Um, Yep, I'm Andy. Hey, we're in a series called Homecoming. We're looking at the three parables in Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and spending a significant amount of time in what is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son, though that's likely a misnomer. It's actually should be called, in my opinion, the parable of the lost two sons. And the God is prodigal. The God is prodigal. It's extravagant. That's what that word means. It's less about being wayward and more lavishly extravagant, and that's who God is with his generosity. And in these parables, Jesus describes God as gentle and lowly, and what's often easily missed is rejected, God is one who is easily rejected. And this is where I need to go into redaction time because I made a comment a couple weeks ago about this idea that God's less concerned about our rejection of God and more concerned about searching for the lost. And I just didn't feel right like speaking for God's thoughts in that matter. Um, I actually think if you think about the beauty of it, it, God takes our rejection and it fuels his purpose and passion for us. Like, could you imagine someone who was rejected and then receives that rejection and in turn uses whatever emotional uh, energy that happens within oneself and then goes after you. Like, you reject me, but I'm going to take that rejection and turn it towards my passion of you. So maybe God cares, cares deeply about us rejecting him. Um, just, a thought, just a thought as I was thinking about that. Sometimes when we speak on God's behalf, uh, we should hold it with a bit more humility. So I just wanted to name that from a couple weeks ago. I also mentioned that parables that we're in—they they're not just an illustration of an idea. They actually create meaning, and parables can create many meanings. And within just the one that Oakley read so beautifully, which was long by the way, great job, great job. Uh, there's tons of meanings, tons of themes that can that can arise out of that. You could preach like a year in this parable. There's uh, the parenthood of God. The nature of sin, what exactly is repentance, joy in community, finding the lost, the good life, what is the good life? What is spiritual maturity? This is all can be discerned from this parable. Uh, rediscovering worship like we did last week, in many ways these parable and this one uh, helps us understand why we do celebrate and be glad because of God's saving work, ongoing work as well. And then some themes that we looked at two weeks ago was divine hospitality and specifically what is home. And the main idea that arose: We're going to spend not a lot of time on the younger brother. We're going with the elder brother today, but I want to recap that. Was we looked at the older, younger brother? The themes arose was simply this: that God honors our freedom, even at the cost of God's own rejection. True love only exists within a framework of freedom. How am I doing? We're like trying to like talk about where I'm standing. It's good, right? Like you can see the screen for the most part. Okay. Uh, the God who loves risks that it's. Love is not being received. That's a big one. A God who truly loves risks that his love is not being received because love requires freedom. And then the catcher of all is, is that we, we, home can only be found in God's divine love. So there's freedom, but there's also longing that only points to God and God's divine love. That's the Christian worldview uh, quickly summated. And then we ask some of the questions, like, what are some of the ways that God welcomes those who may be far from home. And the father, looking for the younger son, always keeps an eye out in the distance, looking on the horizon. And then when the father embraces the child, uh, he embraces the child, and we embrace one another while dismissing the shame. The son tries to confess that he's a slave, and the father's like, yeah, let's put a ring on him, sandals on his feet. This kid is home. I got my child back. Which is wonderful. No condemnation in Christ. Also, God makes explicit that this is his home and that we in turn are to deflect any authority other than God's love and dominion. This isn't about Andy. This isn't about Water's Edge. They're great things, um, but I mean, I'm okay. But like you all, your authority is given by the power of the Holy Spirit, but ultimately it's meant to point back to God and not to ourselves. The father's the one who's throwing the party, he's welcoming him, he's reinstating the son, but this is my home, and he belongs to me. So that has huge implications, that there's absolute dignity in who you and I are, but there's also lasting humility in whose we are. It's this idea of uh, the freedom and surrendering to love. You feel that paradox? That we find freedom in God as we surrender to God's love hopefully we'll hit on some implications of that. The question we asked is naming someone that God's calling us to run to who may be far from the church. They may be in the church, not far from the church, far from God. Name someone who may be lost and lonely that God is calling you to run to. So part of our gathering is we like to discuss with one another, and I'm, I'm hitting this point a lot because I think it matters for us As people, it matters for our own growth and maturity. Like, Who's somebody in your life that may be lost and lonely that God is calling you to run to? Um, So take time. If if you shared somebody a couple weeks ago, take time to say how that's going. If you're new here and you're like, I feel lost and lonely, uh, how may God be running towards you? Just take time to submerge yourself in this question and see what bubbles up. Cool? So now we prayer, pair, and share. We just get together and talk with our neighbors. If you're brave, you can reach out to somebody across from you. Okay. The post-credit scene for two weeks ago's message was the fourth point. Lord, we just love you. We thank you for this group. Into your hands. Don't start it yet. All right, all right. Okay, sweet. Kind of the, the epilogue to, to two weeks ago message was that we would resist the temptation to being the perfect big brother, which leans in the conversation we're having today. A couple weeks ago, younger brother, now we're with the elder brother. And, and one theme that I didn't mention as I talked about that theological cluster that it can arise from this parable is this idea of self-righteousness that rejects others, which is, is an affection, It's one of the main resistances that a lot of people have to the church. They had some awful experience with leadership or members in a church who were exercising condemnation or judgmentalism. And it's hard to escape when you see media and technology point to these scandals that happen, not just failings in the church, but just condemnation from leaders in charge, this elder brother lostness that is alive and well in the church. I'm calling it elder Brother losses. Even somebody last week gave me a survey from Point Loma students of where they are when it comes to church, etc. And that, of course, was cited in some of the examples. I can give you statistics, but people have a lot of resistance to the church because of this elder brother reality that exists within. And I think it's. I don't want to spend a lot of time with those statistics because it's really easy to cite those examples and point at those directions it's more difficult to kind of point inside of us and see the elder brother within. That uh, we all struggle with our own elder brother lostness within the church. You, you can't not struggle with it when you start following Jesus for a while. We need to be aware, and this is the main idea, of our own tendency to be the big brother or sister. And, and case in point is, if you cannot see yourself as the elder brother, like that's a very elder brother thing to do. That is, you're like, oh, I'm, it's like, it's like, nah, that's not me. It's like, there's the same self-righteousness that are affecting the Pharisees and the teachers in the law are affecting the elder brother and, and likely are infecting me and, and you. And certainly is me. I'm, I'm not, I'm not the elder brother. That's an elder brother thing to say. Um, and, and that self-righteousness, this isn't something else that's uncomfortable. It has a way of infecting others. It infected the younger brother. It's a self righteous because a lot of people in their pain have decided to write off church, Jesus, God, religion because of some of the sinful people that they existed within, which the church is a home for sinful people. Please know that. Deeply loved sinners. Um, they've decided to write off, and within that writing off is a self-righteousness that says, Church, God, religion, they're all just the same. I mean, I got a text this week from my buddy as I was trying to reach out to him. He says, all various gods were conjured up by manipulative rulers. That's a self-righteous statement in its own right. It is. As Tim Keller, he noted the late, in his book, Prodigal God, many people are spiritually searching for Jesus but want nothing to do with Christ's community, or church because the church contains elder brothers. But to write off the church... To judge every as wrong, oppressive, and judgmental is its own form of self-righteousness. Keller concludes that the Lord gave us a church as a gift and necessity. Now I think, I'm, I'm reading your minds, maybe, maybe not. Well, aren't you, by naming the self-righteousness of others, Andy, participating in that cycle? That's a fair comment. It's actually fair. It, it's really fair. The church is filled with simple sin people, but Andy stands outside of that, noting all this. Seemingly, making self-righteous judgments on the judge judging others. I'm in the cycle now. I'm I, 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 Fair comment. It's a fair comment. I think that's why we, um, we need to be aware of our own tendency to be the big brother or sister. I, I want to hold this conversation with humility and even name some of my own self, elder brotherness, lostness, a, a, as I preach, uh, so that we all can become the, the true brother and sister that we want and need. That's the goal is like we want to we want to realize our own tendency and there'll be reflection questions as we go by Um, and you'll think about it and you'll want to respond but hold on to it we'll have time to respond I'm going to throw a couple questions at us Um, but we we need to break this the cycle of self-righteousness so that we can truly be the true sister and brother that others need and want that's the question I'm asking today so yes I, I participate in the cycle I understand that um um, and I want to break that cycle. So let's read the scripture again. I'm going to read a little bit at the beginning, 15, 11 to 31. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Again, we should call this the parable of the lost two sons. Uh, the younger one said the father, father, give me my share of the estate. And as we talked about ad nauseum two weeks ago, the son lost his wealth, he lost himself, he remembered the father, returned, Wanting to be a slave, but was received as a child of God. Robe, ring, sandals, dignity. Reinstated before the community, they threw the largest barbecue they ever had. And verse 24, it says, For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older, the elder son was in the field. He's in the field working away at what is likely his own estate now. Seemingly apart from the father. Don't know what's going on there, but worth noting. Unaware of even the father's whereabouts. He's working in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened cat because he has him back safe and sound. Here the older brother becomes angry and refuses to go in. The older brother... Is in many ways the secondary patriarch in the house. He's shirking on his responsibilities. If there's a festivity going on, he should be there as a participating as a master of ceremonies, to be welcoming people. At least that's what goes down in ancient Mideastern culture. And by him not coming in, he's humiliating his father. And it's, but the father is acquainted with humiliation, so what does the father do? He goes out and searches for his son. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Now, remember we said this two weeks ago, if you don't, it's okay, that we said with the younger son, the father didn't search. We see that the shepherd who lost one of the 99 goes out and searches. We see that the woman searches the entire house. This woman who represents God goes and looks all over the house for this lost coin. But the father doesn't go and look for his wayward younger son. This has two huge implications. One is a question, who was supposed to go search for the younger son? We'll talk about that later. The second one is this, is that perhaps because the father now goes out in search, the elder brother lostness could be greater than the younger brother lostness. The elder brother lostness could be greater than the younger brother lostness. Something to chew on. The son responds, but he answered his father, look, doesn't even address him. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. There's a whole sermon that could be preached on. Did he ever ask for a young goat? But when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf. See, the, the older brother is very angry. And when he brings up this idea of property, you can tell that his intentions are directed towards the estate that is his. And now that the brother has come home, there's likely the implications that the state will now be further diminished and divided between them. He cares about what's his. We'll talk more about that later. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad we had to. Because this brother of yours, notice he brings him back to this brother of yours. You are your brother's keeper. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this parable is famously left open because we are waiting for the response of Jesus' original audience, which are the teachers of the lost, teacher of the law, and the Pharisees, who are dictated are depicted as the elder brother. So again, the question is, how do we break the cycle of self-righteousness so that we become the true brother or sisters others need and want? The first point really plays into the elder brother and the, the elder brother's lostness is that it's a little wordy, but you'll get it. We must not only confess the things that we do wrong, but also honestly repent for the reasons we do things right. We have to confess um, not only for the things that we do wrong, but repent honestly and openly about why we do things right. What does that even mean? Let's get into that. Well, the son says, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. He's angry. The reason why is that he's been slaving for his father. This means that he believes that he has rights, that the decision the father makes to reinstate the son was not the father's decision, that it was... His and the father's are likely even his because he's now the owner of the estate. That he is working, he's been slaving in order to take control of what, he is, what is his. Uh, one could say the younger came home to be slave and the older was always a slave working for the day that perhaps he could own his own slaves. No one's slave and no one's in charge either. No one's completely in control. A telltale sign of us Slaving, because this is classically known as works-based righteousness, this idea that we work for control, we work for outcomes, we do what we can so that God will do what God can for our behalf. This is works-based righteousness. And a a telltale sign of this, when you're working for God, when you're slaving for God, is a lack of joy or love in the midst of your quote-unquote duties. This is, the duties are a means, so this, this begs a hard question. What are some of the things that we do for the kingdom, single quote, that are really to our own advantage? What are the, some of the things, if you've been in the church for a while, if you're just visiting or like kind of like exploring God, this isn't really an applicable question for you. This is about those who have confessed Christ as Lord, have been in the church. What are the things we do for the single quote's kingdom that are really to our own advantage? It's a hard question. I don't think we'll, you'll be able to surmise this all at once. Things will come up, um, but it's really about your motives, my motives. Our motives are mixed. They're mixed at best. My buddy Scott always tells us, our motives are mixed at best. Like, do I, do I give just out of freedom, or do I give to be seen or thanked, or because I, I think I should give uh, because I'm asking everybody else to give, rather than giving out of freedom? Do I serve because I'm enjoying it when I set up chairs, Remove boxes, or like I'm like looking forward to what God's going to do today, or do I serve because I think it validates my servant leadership as a leader? I, I, I sh- I'm re- tr- I'm shooting for the former, I am, but I struggle with the latter. We struggle. Are my prayers authentic, especially those out loud, or do I want to sound good? These are things that we struggle with. Uh, mixed motives. I mean, we've had Rue, a safe family kid, and there's like this. Comparison happens when you see someone take a safe you're like, man, I should do that, you know? And like, we were talking about it with me, Casey, and Larry, we were all talking about it last week. We're like, am I doing it because I want to serve little Jesus? Or do I think it's just my turn to do it? I'm trying to do it because I want to hold little Jesus. Um, I mean, even this last week, you know how great the gathering was last week. Remember how dope that was? People were sharing and all that. I was like, man, this is a great gathering. But then there was like this little twinge in me. It's like, man, how are you going to follow it up next week? <laughs> I was like, crap, that was so good. Don't blow it. As if the church is on my shoulders each and every Sunday. Those are things I struggle with. I name them openly because I feel fairly surrendered about that. But those temptations come in. Like what am I trying to do to maintain my own leadership that I have just in this season for whatever God has? What, am I doing for, what are we doing for our own advantage? And here's the deal, and it's really dictated very well in this parable. When things goes wrong, when, when life goes awry, our motivations are revealed. Like the son, elder son, has a son come home. He's probably actually, there's probably a freedom he has when the younger son's gone. It's like, okay, now it's all mine. That may be why he's out in the field working because I need to further my, my own little kingdom Um, But then when things go wrong, it's like, what? No, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I've done everything. It shouldn't work out like this. The issue is, like, life does go awry at times. And the only thing we're truly promised is the presence of God, which is enough, the presence. But when things go wrong and we're on our own, we either blame ourselves like the younger brother or we'll blame God like the older brother. And when, when, the obedience of, when the pattern of obedience equals control is broken, the older brother, myself included, unaware of our own brokenness and broken heart chooses anger instead of the need for God's saving love. We, we tend to forget our own lostness. And this is, this is a harder question. For those in the church, again, do we have a sense of our own lostness? Do you and I have a sense of our own losses? Like, what are our sins? What are our temptations? And, and, and how do we go our own way? Or how are we tempted to go our own way? Or how do our thoughts seem to go their own way before we're able to take them captive? I was, at, I was in a group of pastors this week where we were asked that question. Hey, what is the dark side of your leadership? And what's that Monday morning headline where you'd be taken out of ministry? Pastor Phil's blah, 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 like that thing. And all of our eyes, a room of 20, Your eyes, they go wide, you know, they go wide. I'm not going to share what was shared, but other than what I can share. And for me, there's quite a bit that could take me out. Um, I overwork. I'm sometimes too nice. No, no, that's like, don't you, when people share that, you're like, get out of here, dude. <laughs> 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 it's like, oh, brother. No, no, um, you know, speaking before thinking is probably one of my easy ones. Uh, lust and affairs is always something I need to pray against. It is, I have accountability, but like, it's just, it's not like I'm immune to that. Uh, negligence of finances, like running the church, it's like, like making sure that we're on the up and up is something I'm aware of. I think this is a thing though. My senses, where my mind goes when I'm, um, squeezed is, is violence, physical violence. That's like my temptation both outside of the home and inside of the home. I'm not saying I've acted out, but those struggles and temptations come into my head. That's a thing that happens. And I shared that with the guys. It's like, oh, my Monday morning headline would be domestic violence, a pastor, blah, blah, blah. And I share that openly because I know by bringing it to light, I'm less alone, that God can use that. And yeah, I've not hit my wife, strangled my kids. I feel like I need to qualify that, but I share that. Like, that's where my head goes, You get in an argument with somebody and they walk away, whether they're an adult or a kid, you're like, what the, you know, it's like, okay, 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 right? I mean, it's a thing, it's a thing. We got to like be, we got to keep on the up and up, KK, right? Those are the thoughts and temptations that can creep into my head. So we have to remember the gospel, that everyone is loved, everyone is wrong, and God's love changes our lives. The necessity is coming home to receive God's love. There's no condemnation in Christ, right? There's also this. There's no true credentials that you and I have in Christ. We're just children loved by God who needs God's love and are giving influence and authority in seasons. How we doing? Got really honest in here. You doing good? I'm feeling good. How do we break this cycle of self-righteousness so that we can become the true brother or sisters others need and want? This is a this is the second point that we have. The first is to be honest about our our loss or our lostness and why we do things right. Um, it's good to be honest with one another. It's like oh yeah, because it, it helps reorient us. Like I'm here to serve because I love Jesus. I love when people embrace in the way, and this is why I serve. Um, We we need to be aware of those things. And we also, whether we are right, wrong, or anywhere in between, we must graciously profess that God is always pursuing us. Like just in that moment three minutes ago, do you know God's arms are wrapped around me as I shared that with you? Just loves me. It's like, that's my boy. That God's arms are wrapped around you in your lostness. That God is the pursuer God. That he loves us. God searches for the elder. It's helpful to know that like the most morally annoying people still receive the initiatory grace of God. They do. That's what they need. That's what we need. You never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Again, I I believe if the older son asked for a party, that father would be gracious. was like, Yeah, let's do it. Let's party, sleep over time, let's do whatever you want to do. Um that's who God is. I, I believe it. But when the son of yours squandered your property with prostitutes comes home so you kill the fat and calf room and the son reso- the father responds rather my son you're always with me and everything i have is yours we, we have to profess that god is always pursuing us we have to believe this requires trust we have to trust that god always wants me home that god wants me just as much as that crazy story about that person who was completely wrapped in drugs and came home to God. God wants you just as much as that story that you read about. Or God wants you just as much as an orphan on the street. Like, God wants you. God can't rest until you're home with God. Like, that's who our God is. He's got the capacity to pursue you. He is pursuing you and I. And when we trust this truth, then we can profess this truth to others. But, oh yeah, God's pursuing me. God loves me. I can preach that also God is pursuing you. That God is always chasing after you, whether you're right, wrong, or somewhere in between. And one way that we can trust that God is pursuing us is that we can look back and see the ways that God has pursued us and God has come through. If we can trust what God has done, we can trust what God is doing. And this enters in the discipline of gratitude. Uh, Henry Nouwen, you know I like him, he's one of my favorite Dutch Catholic priests. He's written many books including the parable of the product. return it's called return of the prodigal son a story of homecoming there's a there's a quote in there there it is return of the prodigal son there it is yeah he says it simply this that gratitude is the opposite of resentment that the younger's rebellious the older's resentful and gratitude it, it just blocks resentment when we start being grateful for all that God has given us which is everything we start losing resentment. It just falls off like scales. It's a challenge. The good news is you can always practice it. You can always be grateful. Just go outside. It's a wonderful act of gratitude just by being outside. It's a choice like love, meaning I can be grateful even when my emotions are steeped in jealousy, anger, and sadness. You can choose gratitude. There's like a confounding parable that Jesus tells later on in Matthew 20. I'm thinking about doing it for Lent, but I probably won't. Um, It's one where all these workers go and they get hired out by this vineyard owner and they come in at different times throughout the day. But they all get paid a day's wage. And the ones who've been working all day are kind of bummed about it. They're like, what's going on? This is not fair. And I've been sitting with that parable and as I sit with this one, and, and like the older brothers who were there the whole time, Um, the call is to celebrate God's kindness and generosity, to be stoked for those people who've been waiting for work all day and just be like, yeah, dude, look how gracious this, this vineyard owner, look how gracious our father is. The elder son should be like, yeah, look how gracious my dad is. That's my dad too. It's a wonderful reality to celebrate the kindness of God to others. To be grateful not only for what God's doing in our life, but grateful for what God's doing in the life of Hamilton or or Danielle or Bear. And gratitude instills humility. It does, because you recognize that what we've been given is a gift, that God has control in in life, and he's given us our influence and authority, our provision in this season for as long as that is. And there are a lot of great leaders in our church whether you lead in the home, you have a household that you run, whether you participate or teach in school, uh, some very sharp corporate leaders uh, within here. And I I think a helpful question for us is if the people who are under you, if they were surveyed anonymously, anonymously, how do you say that? Anonymously. (laughs) (laughs) Anonymously. I can't say it. Anonymous. I can't do it. I've done it before. If the people under you were an anonymous survey, would they say that you're grateful for them? Would they say you're a humble leader? Think about that question. That one's a, that one's a wild one. Um, and I, I recognize that I've like thrown a bunch of questions at you, and I, I want to put them back up on the screen just so we'd have a, our second time just to prepare and share of like, hey, which one of these questions are sticking out to you and Why? Because they're they're heavy. They're like whoa, those are big ones. So choose one. Again, it's like if you're if it's like a river, and a branch falls off a tree, which one kind of gets stuck on the rocks? Which one like just kind of sits with you more? Choose one and share with uh, the people around you, perhaps the reasoning for that, why it is sticking out to you. So the questions are: What are we doing for the sake of kingdom? That's really to our own advantage. For us in the church, do we have a sense of our own lostness? And what would those who are maybe under you say? You're great. Would they say you're grateful or humble or not? Again, an anonymous survey. If you go to somebody that you're working for, you you think I'm grateful, right? That may be like hard. <laughs> so uh, yeah, take a minute and share which one of those stick out to you. So uh, how we feeling? We good? Troy boy, you good? That's my boy Troy and Lauren over there. She's, she's my friend, too, Lauren and Troy. She's not my boy. That's Lauren. <laughs> That's my boy Troy. That's Lauren. Nance, how you doing? You good? <laughs> Love you, lady. How's the Maryland? You live in Maryland, right? Yeah. It's good, good. Oh, nice. Pretty dope there. I grew up around Maryland. Um, All right. So, hey, this is off notes. As um, shepherds, I like the term shepherds more than leaders, we are not going to be able to model perfection. But what we can model for those under us, whether it's parenting, employees, et cetera, et cetera, is asking forgiveness. That is something that's been conveyed to me time and time again. You're going to have to learn to ask forgiveness from little people and big people alike. You're just going to. And it, and it shows them a third way because then it gives them um, just the comfort of giving grace. So uh, yeah, so how do we break the cycle of self-righteousness so that we can become the true sister or brother that others need and want? Recap is we repent not only the things we do wrong, but openly be honest about why we do things right. Uh, and then in any season, right or wrong or in between, we believe that God is always pursuing us. And we profess that to ourselves and to others. And then lastly, we are the ones who search for the lost. As the lost, we search for the lost. Uh, My son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. He's reminding him that whose he is and who he is because in this moment, he doesn't know. He's lost. But then he also returns him to the vocation that we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead, is alive again. He's lost and is found. He's safe. So now we return to the note that I mentioned earlier, the implication of the father not searching for the wayward son, uh, though he did search for the elder brother who's wayward. Who should have been searching for the younger son? The elder brother. The elder brother should be the one out searching for the younger son. That's the whole, like, aha of this parable that you've heard so many times, that it's actually the older brother, older brother who should have been out searching for the younger. That's what Jesus is telling. To, I mean, think about it, The Pharisees and teachers of the law, it says there's these tax collectors and sinners on this side, and then these Pharisees and teachers of the law, and he tells them this parable, and it's like Jesus is trying to direct those people, us, to find those people, them, because we're all, wrong and we're all loved and we all need to come home to God's love. Um there and and this is a dynamic you see in scripture from the very beginning with Cain and Abel, the first two brothers in scripture. God asks Cain who murders his brother. Uh where where is Abel? He says, "Am I my brother's keeper?" To which God responds, "Yes." You don't hear it, but that's implicit. And you see this brotherly sibling dynamic played out in Scripture. Um, you feel a little bit with Abraham a lot, but you definitely see it with Isaac and Esau. You see it with Joseph and his brothers. A bit with Moses and Aaron. There's a beautiful symbiotic nature there. You see it with uh, Gideon and his brothers David versus his brothers Solomon against all the other brothers, David's kids. It's, it's a theme. Even you can say Judah and the northern king of Israel who later becomes Samaria, this, had this broken brotherly dynamic. And it all goes back to this dynamic between Cain and Abel. Am I b- my brother's keeper? Yep, yes you are. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. There's a, there's a great story, a true story, that's told by a theologian um, and professor, Edmund um, Clowney. He recounts this true story of Vietnam, um, where a U.S. soldier becomes missing, and there's no contact, no official channels of where the this, where this soldier is. He's just missing, MIA, completely. Don't know where he is. So the elder brother, hearing about this, family hears that, he goes and flies out to Vietnam during the war, and he starts searching through the jungles and through the battlefield. And people on both sides of the war hear about this, and they say, do not hurt this person. They're so uh, enamored. And they so respect this elder brother searching for his younger brother that he had some type of immunity because all of us can connect with this idea of like going and searching for the, that lost brother or sister. It's a really great story. That some of them simply called him the brother. That's what he was called. Uh, uh, I don't know the end of that. Everybody <laughs> ends it. Yeah, it's, it was, Keller mentioned it. He says it's a true story. It's also Edmund Clowney. I, I don't know if he found him. I I was, like, waiting for that question and searching, and I couldn't, I don't know what happened. But uh, it's called The Brother, Vietnam, Edmund Clowney. I stole it from the book Prodigal God from Tim Keller. I just need to name that. But it it really captured me. And Keller said it's a true story. I believe it's a true story. Um, But could you imagine what would happen in the relationship between the elder brother and the the younger brother if he went out and searched for him? Like, that's what Jesus is trying to draw the leadership in the church towards, like us. He's like, dude, what if we are all out there just searching together? And, and, and the three parables have crescendoed to this moment, to this moment where like, like what, what should the older brother have done? Well, the older brother is there. The older brother is Jesus. And he's showing this other way, this third way where he's out. Like he is the, the shepherd, he's the leader, but he is out searching for the lost, he comes and searches, and he does it at a cost, at the cost of his own life. This is why Paul writes, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Every penny belonged to the elder brother, but he was supposed to use that penny, so that his inheritance towards finding his younger brother. And that's what Jesus does. He, he gives his own life. He, he gives up everything. He gives up his rightful place to come and search for us and then dies at an infinite cost to himself. There's like a myth. There's a myth in the church. There's a myth that like God's grace is free. It's, it's actually very true, but it's also a myth. And here's why it's a myth, is that God's grace to us as we receive it freely is absolutely free, but it came at a cost to God infinite cost. this means that we have a home with God and in that home which we don't deserve but we're freely given because we're children of God our Lord is able to ask from us really anything and here's the kicker of that that whatever God asks from you ultimately is for your own good that's the mystery of the kingdom that is it that God can ask anything from you, but it will be for your own good, because God knows we don't. That's the the cost of grace. So who's somebody that God is asking you to run to, to search for? I remember when I came back in the ministry, I have a lot of buddies who send me texts like I talked about earlier. Um, But that same buddy told me years, years ago, he's like, dude, if you believe in this, you better... You better go after it, because I <laughs> this matters for me. To which I still try to pursue him as I go. I get the stiff arm a lot, but he did say in a moment of I believe sobriety, like if this is true, you got to go after it because it has implications for my own life. And that's that's what this is about. Like that we are called um, to, to not only celebrate the lost being found, but to go out and search. So who is Who is someone that God has asked me to run after? Because it matters. It matters to God. It matters to that person ultimately. Amen? So some next steps for this before the amazing worship comes up is um, maybe you're here and just checking things out or you've had um, experience with the church. Rejoin the church. Come back in. See what the Lord's up to. Like take a step, whatever that step is for you, um, that's not for me to decide that's between you and the Lord, but we'd love to help you discern what that looks like, but rejoin the church. Come back inside the house. It's not perfect. It's filled with some deeply sinful people, but we're, you know, like we're, we're trying our best. <laughs> As we receive God's love, what I mean by that is, um, we're, we're trying to respond. Um, secondly, pursue someone who's seemingly close to Christianity but far from Christ. And here's a great question I love, like for somebody like that. If somebody's like talking like a lot of church talk, but you're like, I, I, I don't know where God is in all this. Just ask them that question. Like, what is Jesus bring to your attention these days? I feel like that's a, that's a really nice question that I'd love to be asked. So like, it's just like a helpful, hey, what's the Lord bring to your attention these days? And see what unfolds from that. That's like a helpful, I think, non- um, abrasive question and then finally as we've been having run after some who are far from god jesus church and invite invite them here invite them here and then next week we're, we're talking about the father the heart of the father which i'm looking forward to becoming the parent that's next week but with that i'm going to pray for us and i'll invite our musicians on stage lord we are um yeah i really like that story about that brother going out at his own cost of himself of searching for others, Lord, and it is hard. There is a lord, there's a world that's resistant to you and to your bride, the church, God. And God, I, I just pray that we return to the fact that, yeah, we're deeply loved sinners who trust a loving God who is active and alive in this world, who is true and faithful, Lord, who is gentle and lonely, and takes rejection. And only turns it into love. Help us in the midst of the rejection that will come as we uh, speak for God's love for others, for God's grace and truth. Help us to receive rejection and turn it into your love, God, only by the power of your spirit, Lord. That's what your cross does. It takes all the rejection, and it takes your omens, open arms, and it creates an embrace, Lord. That's what the resurrection does. So, Lord, we pray that your resurrected life, how you pursued us outside of that tomb, how you pursue us by the gift of the Holy Spirit after your ascension, Lord, that we would would be pursuers of others for your name's sake. Turn rejection into love. And, Lord, we're sorry for our own lostness. Thank you for saving us before and now. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. PIANO mm-hmm. PLAYS